I'm usually kind of like a hand talker, so we're going to see how this goes today. This could be a challenge. Um, I, I was thinking uh, this week about one of my favorite football movies. It's Remember the Titans. Anybody seen Remember the Titans? Okay, fantastic. If you're not familiar, brief synopsis. This is uh, based on a true story about a high school football team in Virginia that was integrating African-American and, and uh, white kids coming together on a team, and it was very controversial, as many of those integrations were. And uh, in this story, the head football coach is an African-American who's brought in, and they're bringing in students, and the white kids and the white coach all want to quit, and the coach doesn't want his kids to lose their scholarships, so the white coach agrees to be uh, the defensive coordinator for the African-American coach, and the white kids agree to stay on the team, and then they got to deal with all this conflict. And so at the beginning of the movie, all the students go to camp. They go to stay at a college in Pennsylvania where they do this extended training camp together. And the goal of the camp really for the coaches is to bring these students together. Uh, and one morning at 3 a.m., uh, the head coach, Coach Boone, wakes up all the students and takes them on a jog through the woods of Pennsylvania. And we're going to pick up in the middle of that jog. Anybody know what this place is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we're still fighting amongst ourselves today. This green field right here, painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys, smoke and hot lead going right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, man. They killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. You listen. You take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together, Right now, on this hollow ground, we too will be destroyed. Just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll learn to play this game like men. I love that scene. There's something uh, almost spiritual about it. And I love this idea that we are wired um, by God's design to come together. We're, we're wired by God's design to be united. And, and the work of the enemy, 
from the very earliest times has always been to divide us, right? To divide people from God, divide people from each other. Uh, but all along, God says, no, I, I designed you to be united as I am united. And so when we see that, when we see those moments of unity, it, it, it actually kind of lifts our spirits, right? It, it gets us excited. It makes us realize, boy, there's something in that that we need and desire that's bigger than us, uh, that connects us to our purpose, to be one family and one people under God. We are wired to do this, and sometimes we do it in effective ways. Sometimes we do it in ineffective ways, but that desire for unity is deep within our hearts. Uh, as we are thinking about uh, being united in this summer, and as we're particularly thinking about the topic of, of sexual unity in these few weeks, uh, it seems to me that, that its power comes from that deep-rooted desire to be together, uh, that God designed us to be together. It is not good for man to be alone, Scripture says. And so, um, we seek that out in all kinds of places, good and bad. And one of the most visible and powerful tools God has given us for that unity is sex. Uh, and so, last week we talked about this idea that um, sex should not be outside the bounds of the things we get to talk about as the people of God, that this is part of our identity and who we are, and therefore it's got to be part of our conversation uh, of discipleship. So I want to talk a little bit this morning uh, about this idea of what it means to be united um, in this gift of sexuality. Uh, and uh, I know I have some friends here who are going to tell me, hey, Jim, I'm not united in that gift of sexuality right now. Hang on. I got something for you too, so just stay with me. Uh, but I want to begin by thinking about um, the the misunderstanding and the proper understanding of the sexual union concept that Paul's wrestling with here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so, I, I hope you noticed uh, as we were reading through 1 Corinthians that there are these quotes in chapter 6. Um, beginning in verse 12, there are several quotes, um, and they're in quotation marks. It says, all things are lawful for me, end quote, but not all things are beneficial. Quote, all things are lawful for me, end quote, but I will not be dominated by anything. Quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, end quote, and God will destroy both one and the other. So here's what, we're, we're not 100% sure what's going on here, but here's what most scholars think. Most scholars think that Paul is quoting himself, okay? So Paul has been to Corinth, he spent a year and a half ministering there, he's written other letters to the city, and in the midst of that, at some point, Paul had a conversation with the Corinthians, and he said, I know the Old Testament has all these laws about what you can eat and not eat, but I'm telling you that in Christ, we're free from those laws. We're no longer required to follow the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. And so, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and all things are lawful for me. And that's great, um, but what happened is what often happens, never happened to me, but what happens is that um, Paul is misinterpreted. Right? That's never happened here. Um, Paul says one thing, and they take it in a totally different direction. So Paul wants to say, hey, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Eat whatever you want. doesn't matter. And somebody in Corinth says, hey, you know what else that might mean? Um, sex is for the body, and the body is for sex. All things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. Right? And, and in fact, that's kind of what Paul was always saying, right? And Paul says, no, 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 guys, you're missing some important details. Okay? Um, so, first of all, you're missing the fact that people aren't food. 
You heard it here first, people are not food. Um, you're, you're missing the fact that people are not objects that we can pick up and use and discard, right? Uh, and, and so Paul wants them to recognize that, yes, sure, you can eat a hamburger and move on with your life and have something better for lunch or dinner the next day. You can't use a person and move on. Um, that there is something far more powerful happening in this aspect of our unity because people aren't objects. People bear the image of God. Every person, no matter how we perceive them, is an eternal being. In fact, um, Paul emphasizes the same message that Moses emphasizes, the same message that Jesus emphasizes in Matthew 19. He says, we are physical and spiritual beings. There is no me that exists apart from my body. I am my body and I am me. Uh, and when I come together with another person, something spiritual happens. And the two become one flesh. This is a passage that the New Testament authors speak about a lot. Paul mentions it, Jesus mentions it, because it's such a powerful concept. Uh, they want us to understand that in the act of sexual union, there is something not just physical, but spiritual happening. There is this connection that unites us to someone, whether we want it or not, in memories and in emotion and in connections that cannot be easily disconnected. Uh, and that, that intimacy that comes is one that can possibly last our whole life long. That's what it's designed to do. It's designed to be a part of who we are as long as we are ourselves. And in the midst of that incredible gift of union and of coming together, um, there is this design of God's that's supposed to help us recognize um, more of who we are and who God wants us to be. Um, this is a, a really simple concept, um, but it's a really helpful one for me. Uh, I often think about uh, a, a triangle uh, with um, one um, significant other, one spouse on one side and one over here, and this side of the triangle is intimacy, and this side of the triangle is commitment. And here... What do we have at the top? Anybody want to guess? Uh, well, I heard a lot of good things, um, but I'm going to go with sex because that's what we were going with. Um, um, but, but you said God, and I like that. God's good. Um, and we're also going to say marriage. Okay? Um, and, and, and here's th this, this really simple concept that I think is so incredibly important um, that Paul and Moses and Jesus are trying to communicate that um, in our shared life with another person, um, that intimacy is designed to be connected to a commitment. And that intimacy is not just a physical intimacy, right? It comes from sharing our hopes and dreams and our joys and fears and our doubts and our faith. And as we grow in our commitment to each other, so we grow in our intimacy to each other until we get to this point where we have the this complete and deep intimacy of a sexual union in the context of this incredible commitment of a marriage union. Right? A really simple idea, but a really important and powerful one for us because when we remove one side of the triangle, when we remove commitment, for example, as Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6, um, we get a broken kind of union. Right? We get a union 
um, that makes these deep spiritual connections without the safety and security of knowing that the person to whom we're connected loves us and cares for us and is committed to us. Really simple concept, um, really important, um, because it's not just about our relationship with other people. See, I, I think the point of the sexual union, as we have it in Scripture, yeah, sure, it's, it's to make children, and yes, sure, it's to express the full love between a man and a woman, but, but even more significantly, um, the purpose of this union is to help us understand what it means to be intimate with God. So, this is actually a little bit awkward, um, but I don't know if you noticed in our passage today, Paul says, hey, uh, you know, if, if you unite yourself with a prostitute, you become one body with her because the two shall become one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. He also says, should I take the members of Christ, because your bodies are members of Christ, and unite them to something else. And he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God. Paul's using the same language of intimacy and commitment and connection that he uses to describe the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage and sex as he uses to describe the relationship between us and God. And by the way, um, Paul is in good company. This is a consistent message that runs throughout Scripture, um, that the idea of marriage and even the idea of sex are, and the sexual union are ways that we understand God's relationship to us. So let me read you some weird Bible passages. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, um, I said to you, live and grow up like a plant of the field. You grew up and became tall and arrived at full womanhood. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. I passed by you again and looked on you. You were at the age for love. I spread the edge of my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Or we have uh, in Hosea, uh, actually, let's, uh, Isaiah chapter 54, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, like the wife of a man's youth when she is cast off, says your God. We see this again and again in the New Testament. We see uh, the image in Revelation of the church descending from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband prepared for the marriage feast of the Lamb where Jesus, the bridegroom, marries the church. We see this beautiful language in Ephesians where Paul again comes back to this same passage in Genesis chapter 2 where he says, "'Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her in order to make her holy so as to present the church to Himself in splendor so that she may be holy without blemish.'" For in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking about Christ and the church." 
again and again in Scripture, our relationship with God is described in terms of a marriage and sexual union. Oh, hey, let's make it even more uncomfortable. Um, so, uh, there is a Hebrew word that means to know. It's yada. Everybody say yada. Okay. Uh, yada shows up throughout the Hebrew Bible. Um, we actually read it a little bit this morning in our call to worship in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. Uh, the word yada means to know as in to intellectually comprehend or to recognize, but it's also the word the Bible uses to describe sex. So, um, this isn't like one time, this is over and over and over again. Adam yadad his wife, and she conceived and had a child. And in genealogies, we see so-and-so yadad his wife, and they had so-and-so, and they yadad their wife, and they had so-and-so. Uh, and this idea of, of knowing has almost, almost this sexual marriage connotation when God uses it to describe his relationship with us. So Hosea says, on that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be mentioned no more. And I will take you as my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall yada the Lord." So this whole thing, this whole thing about intimacy and the sexual union and the way that we come together as people is designed by God to help us understand a little bit of the connection He desires to have with us. Christopher West says, uh, the sexual confusion so prevalent in our world and in our own hearts is simply the human desire for heaven gone berserk. And I believe um, that God has this incredible um, goal for us to have a union with Him that surpasses what we can even begin to imagine as a union with someone else on this earth. Uh, even the meaning of ecstasy, ecstasis, Deborah Hirsch says, implies something outside of oneself, which is suggestive of the often reported loss of ego awareness and personal boundaries we experience in the act of lovemaking. Christopher West says, again, the union of the sexes as we know it now will give way to an infinitely greater union. Those who are raised in glory will experience bliss so far superior to earthly sexual union that our wee brains can't even begin to imagine it. So, uh, here's what I want you to understand. Um, this whole concept of this connection um, is entirely designed… Uh, primarily designed to help us understand another connection um, where um, we are here and God is here, and as our intimacy increases with our God and our commitment increases with our God, we have this opportunity to experience this incredible union. Um, what's going up here? It's not sex this time. <laughs> it's heaven, right? It's, it's literal life with God. I cannot spell heaven. Give me a break. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's literal life with God. Um, that um, we get a foretaste of in this life, but that is the promised in the next. Um, this is an incredible idea for me um, that 
that this whole connection and commitment and gift is only designed to get our hearts ready for something infinitely better that we can begin right now, right? Whether you are single or married, right now you can begin this greater journey of commitment and intimacy at the pinnacle of which is a union with God so much better than the best union on earth, we cannot even comprehend how awesome it will be. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. It does, however, bring um, a little bit of a risk for us. Uh, And this is the risk that Paul is so concerned about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. See, um, we believe that on earth, this connection between two people um, that leads to this intimacy and uh, the, the sexual union creates this spiritual connection that those two people are now um, forever bonded. But if we are Christians, then it's not a spiritual connection between three people. It's a spiritual… Ah, I just said the wrong thing. It's not a spiritual connection between two people. It's because it's I'm holding the microphone, guys. Um, it's a spiritual connection between three, right? Um, that um, if I'm on an earthly journey, um, I'm also on a spiritual journey, and I cannot separate these two. Um, they, are, they are forever connected for me. Uh, and so anytime um, that I am um, considering that intimacy and that commitment with another person, my connection with Christ has to be a factor. Ah, um, by the way, uh, in, in our culture today, uh, in a really wonderful way, the idea of consent has been elevated as um, a, a critical concept when we think about anything related to a physical relationship with another person. This is a great thing. It is wonderful that we have recognized, after an unbelievable amount of time, that we ought to be thinking more about consent. But I want to say that in a three-party relationship, all three parties have to give consent. And so for me as a Christian, my earthly relationships are going to need not just the consent of the other person, but the consent of the God who lives within me. Paul says, those who are spiritually united to Christ cannot experience a casual sexual union outside the covenant of marriage without profaning the Holy Spirit who inhabits our bodies and the Lord to whom we are betrothed and the Father who designed us to know and be fully known. Uh, And so, one of the great dangers for us uh, is to proclaim a gospel that affects our souls but not our bodies. And, and Paul says, and Moses says, and Jesus says, hey, um, what you are acting out foreshadowing on earth is part of this incredible spiritual reality um, that you are already living into. Uh, and so what you do has the potential to either cheapen or deepen your divine connection. Uh, and, and this is the thing I worry about so much in our lives uh, is we are often tempted to take shortcuts, right? We want to take a shortcut. Let's, let's skip some of the commitment. Um, let's just get to the intimacy. That part is really fun. Uh, and yet, um, when we do that, it is destructive for ourselves and for the larger body of Christ. Uh, Levi Lusco says, now yells louder, but later lasts longer. I like that a lot. Now yells louder, but later lasts longer. And it's this recognition that for those in Christ, there are extra stakes involved 
in our spiritual journey and our connections with other people. Because we are connected to God and we cannot lose that connection, we bring that into our other relationships. Uh, And when we take those shortcuts of commitment to get to the fun part of intimacy, um, we are destructive for ourselves and for others. Um, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Uh, I always think about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Remember, Joseph goes into the house and Potiphar's wife is like, hey, come sleep with me. And Joseph is like, nope, I got to go. And he runs away and she like grabs his coat and he just runs off without it. Uh, And and I I think this idea that Paul mentions here is so important that um, when we are tempted to take those shortcuts, uh, our job is just to run away from those situations. Uh, there's a, another Christian preacher whose name escapes me at the moment. It'll come to me later. Uh, and he has a great sermon on this topic. And he says, um, fleeing sexual morality is kind of like um, what you do when you see a bear in your campsite, right? If you go camping and you see a bear in your campsite, you should not go into the campsite and fight the bear, right? You leave the bear with the campsite and you go do something else. I wish Stephanie Fenimore was here today because Stephanie Fenimore told me a story. Apparently, there's something called bear repellent, and she once, like, had a bear charge at her and sprayed her with bear repellent, sprayed the bear with bear repellent, and it worked, and that's amazing. There's no sexual immorality repellent. I'm sorry. Um, So, you see a bear in your campsite, you run away, right? You flee um, because you recognize that the whole gift is not in the shortcut to intimacy, Um, but in the end goal of this incredible union of commitment and intimacy that mirrors our relationship with God. And that journey, that journey of growing commitment and growing intimacy is a beautiful thing. Um, When Krista and I first started dating, um, I had uh, a a history of, of, um, I hadn't had sex before before we started dating, but I had had a history of maybe making some choices I wasn't proud of, and we both had Christ as sort of our guiding goal, and so um, we decided we're going to be really careful in our dating relationship. And so we dated for about a year before we got engaged, and um, we decided it wasn't sufficient just to say, hey, we're not going to have sex before we get married. Um, We thought it was important for us to have some additional boundaries, and so I'm pretty sure, um, I say I'm pretty sure, I'm 100% certain. that the first time that um, we kissed on the lips was after we were engaged. Um, And I'm not saying that's the goal. I'm saying I'm a weirdo. Um, (laughs) But I'm also saying she was totally worth it. She was totally worth it. Um, And I always knew um, that I wanted more than a shortcut with her. I always knew that she was worth any amount of commitment I could offer, and I always knew that I wanted Christ as the third party in our relationship to be proud of everything that we did together. And, and that's my prayer for us. It's not um, that we're prudish and afraid of sex and running away from the topic. It's to say, hey, this incredible gift that God has given us was always designed in this incredible context of this commitment, and it was designed to foreshadow this incredible love that we have in our relationship with God. And in the best and the worst of times, we are invited to ask Christ to be the third party in all of our relationships, romantic or not, sexual or not, because our union with Christ is that which most defines us.
And more than knowing that woman or that man in your life, you were made to know God and be known by Him. You were made to be a temple that is more holy than this building, more holy than the building in which Jesus worshiped in Jerusalem. You were made to be on this journey of ever-increasing intimacy and commitment with God where every other relationship becomes part of that journey. Single or married, you are made for union. O Lord, You have searched me and You have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. Search me, O God, and know my heart. The incredible gift that God gives us is this opportunity to be united with Christ our Savior. Treasure the gift, and may you know God even as you are fully known. Thanks be to Him. Amen.